You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi there, so glad you could be with me today. It is February 1, 2023, and I have a special guest from Banff, Canada. Have you ever been to Banff? You know, when I was asked, I've been asked this question a lot, what's the most beautiful place you've been to? Banff doesn't enter my mind for some reason, and it, it is the top three most beautiful places I've been. I think the reason is because I went there prior to when I started hardcore traveling around 2015. And for that reason, it just slips my mind. But it's just as beautiful as Thailand or Cape Town or Scotland, any of those places. So my guest today, Laurel Irwin, is from Banff and moved away from there to the beach. So she lived her life in the mountains most beautiful mountains and moved to what is arguably the most beautiful beach in the world. So what a life. She is a wife, mother of four, obsessed with weightlifting, which is why she's a fitness coach. She specializes in global strength and body recomposition. I don't even know what that is. She'll have to explain it to you if you contact her about nutrition and personal coaching because I, I really don't know. <laughs> She's insatiably curious about the psychology of motivation and the power of internal beliefs. That'll become evident the more you listen to this episode. She describes people and relationships as being her currency, her measure of success and fulfillment in life. And I would say that's not surprising coming from a female that she would place so much value on people and relationships it's been proven time and again that men prefer objects, things, working with their hands, that sort of thing. And women tend to veer on the side of people and relationships and their preferences. And this starts in utero. And we all fall along a continuum, of course, but that is true. And this has been demonstrated by career choice among the sexes, even in those countries that are the most egalitarian, such as those in Scandinavia. So Laurel says one of her deepest values is truth. And I will tell you, before we get started, she is one of the top two or three smartest gals I've had on this podcast. We're up to almost 80, no, up to almost 90 episodes now. And even my wife, when I was editing this episode, walked in and said, who is that? She's, she's smart. And that, that's, a, that's a huge compliment. I'm going to leave it there. I really, really enjoyed our conversation, which felt like a healthy debate at times, which is something we don't have enough of in this country. Of course, I can't say this country because I'm in America. We recorded in Mexico. She's from Canada. So maybe I'll say we don't have enough healthy debate in North America. How about that? Before I bring her on, I just want you to know that you can find her 
in the show notes. All of the links are there. She offers online training and nutrition coaching slots for those who might be interested. Look her up. She's smart. She's personable. She knows what she's talking about. She's shredded up, so you'll learn a thing or two, I promise you. Please welcome Mrs. Laurel Irwin. Laurel, I am so glad to have you here. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Brad, for inviting me. We are in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. I've been here like 25 times. What about you? I've been here once, but I've been here for a year. Do you live here? We live just south of here, yes. What is that called? That's called Puerto Aventuras, and it's a small little fishing village, gated community. It's a bubble. Everyone gets around on a golf cart. Kids run around everywhere. Lots of expats. You have to force yourself to learn Spanish. Because? Because almost everyone there speaks English or a European language. There's a huge variety, and everyone in the restaurants, everything is done in English. So... In order for me to work on my Spanish, I work out with locals, and that has become my Spanish lessons, is meeting up every day and being exposed to the language, because the the little village we landed in, although it's beautiful and it's a safe little hub for the kids, it feels a lot like home other than the weather. How many kids do you have? We have four kids. Okay, I'm having trouble deciding whether to have a second. How do you decide to go from two to three or three to four? Well, for us, it was pretty simple. I came from a family of four kids. Two were not biological. They were foster kids, but I grew up with four in the home. And I always figured I wanted a big family. And same with my husband. He's one of four. My mother is one of four. My dad is one of four. My husband's mother is one of six. It was just part of the fabric of our relationship when we were getting to know each other that family was a big deal for us. Big families were a big deal for you. That is correct. Are y'all done? We are definitely done. Definitely. Pregnancy was not a good time for me, but we're also very glad we went for it. Pregnancy wasn't a good time like none of them? The pregnancies were all the same for me. I'm an athlete. It's very important to me to be active for my mental health. Mm -hmm. And during pregnancy, I was so tired 100% of the time. There was Mm -hmm. no middle trimester of a sudden burst of energy. There was just, I wanted to sleep and watch Netflix for the whole pregnancy all four times. We Mm -hmm. almost stopped after number three, given that situation. But there was just that little voice in the back of both of our consciences saying, Somebody's missing. Got to go for it. So we did. And on the first time, Thomas was conceived. So that was the answer. How many boys? How many girls? Two and two. And they are age two, four, six, and eight. Wow. You mind me asking at what age you got started? I think I was 25. How about that for figuring out your age? Am I good at that or what? (laughs) Sneaky. Yeah, I can be sneaky at times. Is he older than you, your husband? Yes, he's a year and a half older. Okay. Did y'all meet... At a bar or on an app? Well, we were both from small towns. I was from a little town south of Calgary, and he was from a little mountain tourist town, Banff. You may have heard of it. Yeah, I love Banff. And both of us had lived there almost our whole lives, so we knew everyone in both towns. So the Mm. only way to bring in some fresh blood and meet somebody new was to go online. I had a coworker suggest, maybe you'll meet somebody with similar values if you try this website. And I did. So what was the population of the town you're from? High River has about 13,000 people. And you felt like you needed fresh blood. 13,000 was slim pickings. It was not enough. Not enough. Okay. And he felt the same way about the town he was from. 
Well, Banff is very transient also. So yeah. there's a very small local core group, and then everyone else is seasonal workers or students that come in. Yeah, if you were working at Starbucks or the ski resort, somebody would really have to fall for you to stick around and date you for a long time. So that makes perfect sense. But you're a Canadian, eh? I am. What did you think of that trucker convoy that was headed east? And did y'all jump on the back of a truck? Well, we were in Mexico at the time, and we gathered with a whole bunch of our Canadian friends in Mexico and had a trucker support party at one of their houses. Oh, interesting. Absolutely. Okay. Your opinion of Justin Trudeau is? Oh, I plead the fifth. Okay. I had a girl on that was Russian and asked her opinion of Putin, and it was surprisingly positive. So anyone who pleads the fifth, I'm going to take that as a negative i mean it's a fair assumption yeah do you think he's cute not at all no because he's pretty no because i smell deception oh you don't like liars so you you wouldn't go for a politician i don't think a politician is my game how do you marry a politician i mean it's just acting justin was a drama teacher was he really Absolutely. that doesn't surprise me so that stacks up what else do you know about Justin Trudeau that's a turnoff? Under his leadership, there's been a lot of changes that didn't quite align with our values. And during the events of 2020 and 2021, we decided to take what had been a lifelong dream of living abroad and use those events as the kick in the pants we needed to take the leap and move our family somewhere else for possibly six weeks possibly longer. And you can see how that has turned into almost a year and a half now. The biggest shock to me was the freezing of bank accounts. Could you imagine having your bank account frozen? And how likely would you be to put your money under the mattress after that happens? This was one of the things that got our attention. During the 2020, my husband and I started researching what had happened in totalitarian regimes of the past? What are the warning signs that lead up to it in the even 15, 20, 25 years before the power takeover? And we asked ourselves, is what's happening in Canada in any way reminiscent of those regimes? And I'm not saying Canada's headed for that. And I wasn't saying that then. I was saying, are there similarities between what happened in those regimes and what was happening in Canada? Uh, strikingly, after reading firsthand material and in interviews, they were the exact same warning signs. So, like I said, we used it not as a fear motivator of we need to get out of Canada because we're in danger, but as almost an impetus to do what we already wanted to do. Live abroad, give our kids a different experience, escape winter definitely, Prove to ourselves, even just on a personal growth level, that we could do things that were scary and mm. that broke away from the crowd mentality. Folks, if you've never been to Banff, please put it on your list. I get asked all the time, what's the most beautiful place I've been? And I would say Banff is one of those places I forget, and I'm not sure why. I've been there three or four times, but as far as... If you're a mountain person versus a beach person, I think Banff will rival any other place in the world 
as far as beauty goes. And there's more to Banff. So if you rent a car there, what you would do is fly into Calgary, rent a car, drive, what, two hours west to the mountains? Hour and a half. Hour and a half. And you can see the mountains coming, so you just start getting excited. It's like seeing the castle of Disney World in the distance. So you know you're about to enter where all the trails are and the trees and the Canadian Rockies are larger than any mountain range in America. I do agree with you that that drive never gets old. Banff is how far into those mountains I just described. It's not that far into it. You go through the foothills about an hour west of Calgary. There's a few mountains through Exshaw and then Canmore. So you're maybe driving through mountains for about 40 minutes. And then you're in the township of Banff. And Lake Louise is in Banff or outside of Banff? Lake Louise is approximately another 40 minutes or so west from Banff. Okay. So Lake Louise is the lake that you've probably all seen on Instagram. It's like a bluish green color. And there's usually a girl in Athleta or Lululemon on a rock taking a picture in front of it. And the mountains in the back come to like a V shape. I know you've seen it. Don't you hate when people post things like pictures like that, but don't post where they are? That bothers me to no end. Anyway, I've been to Lake Louise. The first time I ever went was 2010. And there was maybe eight people at the lake. The next time I went was post-Instagram. There were 800 people at the lake. Unbelievable the way that Instagram has changed the world. And they have closed, for example, Boracay, which is an island in the Philippines that my wife and I went to in January of 2016. There are other places. The beach which is in Thailand, where the movie The Beach with Leo DiCaprio was filmed. That has been closed because of the over-tourism. Let me tell you a quick Leo DiCaprio story. I was 17, about to turn 18. My best friend and I went to Cancun. We were out by the pool, and this girl swims up to me. I'm just kind of sitting on the ledge, and she says, Has anybody ever told you you look like Leo DiCaprio? So that night, I'm in the bathroom just looking at my face from all different angles, just trying to see what she sees. And I tell my buddy, I say, hey, did you you hear what that girl told me today that I look like Leo DiCaprio? Do you see it? And he's just like blowing me off. Next day, we go out there, and I don't even think we're in our swim trunks. We're just going to get an amaretta sour. You know, we're 17, 18. We got to start 11 a.m. We got to start drinking. And... There was this girl playing pool volleyball and talking to the guy on the other side of the net. And it was the same girl from the previous day. And would you believe she said to him, has anybody ever told you you look like Leo DiCaprio? No. Oh, I about punched myself in my own gut. Yeah, so that was, you know, 25 years ago. And I think about it every time I see Leo. But it feels good when the paparazzi catches him from 200 million miles away with their giant telescope and he looks worse than I do. You know, he looks kind of flubby and 
out of shape. Now, he still pulls 25-year-old supermodels, but money may have something to do with that. I don't know. I get I get excited. I'm like, yeah, look at Leo. He's not keeping up. He's, he's, he's let himself go a little bit. Anyway, I thought I'd share that story. But Banff is a place that you got to put on your list. It is just gorgeous. So let me ask you, you lived in Banff. Is that where your roots are? Is that where your family's from? That's where my husband was born. His grandpa, he's built hotels uh, 30 years ago. So my husband managed one of them for nine years. He was the general manager, did a lot of renovations, really improved it, kind of changed some pieces of the economy of Banff. I think he was part of creating that demand during the time frame that you're talking about, where the tourism really took off. So he was very good at what he did managed it for nine years, sold it during 2020. Really good timing right before there was vacancy for a year and a half. Perfect timing. Absolutely. And it was right after the big renovation. So we felt really good about that decision and really blessed to be given the opportunity that we then were to have a little bit of freedom for the next year or two Mm -hmm. to figure out if we wanted to do something different. So how does the discussion go between your husband and his dad with regard to how many kids he has to support? It's like, Dad, hey, we're going to have a fourth. Can I get a 15K raise? Like, how does that discussion go down? Oh, there was a little bit of that. Being a family business where grandma is your boss, you know, you got to play the games. But they're a very, very good family. And like I said, big families were important to them, too. So they've always been incredibly supportive. How much was a room there during the busy season? During the busy season, rooms could go up to 400 or 500 a night. And in the low season, you're looking at 68 bucks. $68 versus four to $500? Completely depends on seasonality and demand and whether it's a weekend or a holiday. You'd have in the shoulder months, there's, there's tons of vacancy in that whole area. And then there would be sometimes on a weekend in the summer where the entire town was sold out and we had to start relocating people to Canmore. So the place I'm staying in now in which we're sitting, I paid 1800 a month for the entire month. And this time, which is, I would call it a low season because nobody's really traveling the weeks before Christmas. You know, nobody's taking a holiday during their finals. So, this room was $48 a night, whereas, now, of course, it's a studio uh, versus a two-bedroom, but $48 a night, whereas $1,800 a month works out to $60 a night. And that's not including taxes and fees, but I'm always amazed by the seasonal businesses and how you really have to be budget conscious, which I am, so I think I could do a business like that. Has that carried over into your personal life, the budget conscious way of living? Actually, the lessons that we learned from the hotel that carried over into our personal lives are the hotel my husband was running was one of the smaller ones, an economy property. And he had guts. He had guts to raise his rates when no one thought he could, when nobody thought he could get away with it. So, What we've then done in our personal lives with our rental properties is we look at what the going rates in town are, but we push them. We really push the envelope and see what the market will bear. And that's been really interesting for us, not 
from a financial angle, but the aperture in our mind with which we look at the world, if we can push limits that were arbitrarily imposed upon us based on what someone said we couldn't do more than X, Y, or Z, and then we did it, well, what else could we apply that to? Mm. So for us, it was more of a mindset shift into pushing limits rather than economic decisions. Did you use Airbnb? No, we've used it as consumers, but we've never hosted. Okay, because on Airbnb as a host, they make suggestions based on what things are going for in the area. Are you saying that you would push the envelope not really knowing what other things are going for? No. We would do the research and see exactly what things are going for and get an accurate idea of what the averages are and then go 10% above that. And if we don't get any bites, lower it slowly. But we would always come in a little bit high and then lower rather than just coming in at that average point. So I think it was just a matter of seeing... Almost placing ourselves and our properties that we were renting out in a position where they had a little bit of a premium. And we did put in some premium features, but not to discount ourselves in the value we could bring just based on what the averages happened to be in the area. What would you pay your cleaning staff? I was not the manager of that hotel. (laughs) So you have no idea? Completely unaware. But I know that my husband is a very ethical man and it was good. His employees were always happy with him. Oh, so you think that has to do with ethics? Because I don't tie the two together at all. If I pay you $60,000 to come work for me versus $48,000, I don't feel that I'm more ethical because I gave you sixty. No, all I'm saying is because we were pushing our rates, we always had in mind that we would also pay staff that were providing value really, really well as well, right? So that we could keep this whole ship running, provide a good product, provide value to the staff that we're keeping it going. So you planned to take off. This is 2020. You had no idea where you were going to go or tell me how you narrowed it down. What were you thinking? How did that conversation go between you and your husband? Were your kids involved in the decision? Just give me an overview. The location was pretty simple. We had always vacationed in the place we're now living. And it was actually, it was 2021 when everyone in Canada was saying you can't travel and it would be irresponsible that we decided, wait a second, instead of being locked inside of a Costco with a thousand other people, let's get on an empty plane and go to an empty beach. That's what we did. So we went for a short vacation in 2021, thought about extending it at the time, but there were so many logistics at home that we decided we'll go home, get things in order, and maybe, you know, if if some of the restrictions get tighter in the fall or if we still have this dream in our hearts in the fall, maybe we do it then. And that's exactly what happened was when we got home, my husband built a plywood wall in our basement and we put all of our personal belongings behind it. We rented out the house for the six weeks to somebody that just needed a place for six weeks. We booked Airbnbs where we vacationed. It just seemed like the obvious choice. We've always had an interest in learning Spanish and knew the area. We only knew one person down here. It was not a hard sell for my husband at all because he's always up for an adventure. And because it was open-ended, it wasn't a matter of we're going to change our whole lives forever. It was, 
extended vacation, just gently tell our family we're going for six weeks, maybe a couple months. That's all we really said. We were friends with our prior Airbnb host from the vacation in 2021. And he often still recounts the story of how I had been texting him in the summer of 2021 questions about kids' schools and doctors and all of these different logistical things. And he was sitting there with his family in Cancun eating pizza. And now, a year and a half later, we sit together at the playground and we watch our girls play together, recounting this story. I like Puerto Aventuras myself. I try to say it correctly. It's weird once you visit places how you try to say it the way they do. So you'll never hear me say Buenos Aires again now that I've been there. It's Buenos Aires. Paris is not something I'll do. It's too pretentious. But Puerto Aventuras is something I will try to say correctly. We've stayed there twice. I want to say I got engaged there. However... There's another place that sounds like it near here, and it could have been there, which is the one that has the people. It's like a big, almost like a toll booth, and they wave you through. Is that Puerto Morelos? Okay, see, that those are the two that I get mixed up. Which is the one between Cancun and Playa del Carmen? That one is Puerto Morelos, and Puerto Aventuras is south of Playa. Okay, we got engaged in Puerto Morelos. Yes, but we've been to Puerto Aventuras and liked it a lot. Does it have a lot of orange buildings and very walkable? It's highly walkable. Yes, there are a lot of peach-colored buildings, absolutely. Yes, okay. Yes, we stayed in a place that we loved. It had a view of gigantic pool, and it was one of those pools where you just walk into it. There's no steps. It just gets deeper as you walk into it. And so you could see a lot of kids in floaties kind of near the shore, quote unquote. And then I guess the beach may have been off in the distance. I don't remember where the beach was, but it wasn't on the beach or anything. But we really, really liked it. And you could tell it was built probably in, I don't know, 86, but huge fan and could see staying there for a month because we're always looking for places to stay for a month which is what you did, right? And extended. And is there a school for your kids inside that community? Yes, we were very surprised to see that there were multiple schools. We had known from our Airbnb host that there was one Spanish English official school. But once we got there, we realized that there were a number of there's a Waldorf school and there's a number of homeschool pods that had started during the pandemic. So two of our kids are in one of those two of them are in the the main school, because the little kids really seem to thrive in the big classes, mm -hmm. surrounded by Spanish all the time. And that was a huge goal for the kids was to get their Spanish rolling. Cool. So you have a blog called Road Less Traveled. The website is roadlesstraveled.online. How long have you had that blog? I believe I started it somewhere during 2020. I've always liked writing and never really had a place to put any of my thoughts. I noticed about myself, I always try to take the road less traveled. If the crowd is going one way, I look carefully and see if I should go the other way. Ditto. The first article I read about was grit, and I really liked your writing style. It reminded me of Morgan Housel, where... 
the paragraphs are only one or two sentences. And I, I think it's a modern way of writing, but it's just easier to read, I think. And of course, I'm into grit and resilience. Do you mind if I read that article to those listening? Because I'm a huge fan, and I think they'd enjoy listening. If they don't visit the blog, then at least they'll hear this article. It says, grit is developed when there is no escape. So first you included a quote from the author who wrote my favorite book, actually, Man's Search for Meaning. People who listen to every episode of this podcast have heard me say before that not only is it my favorite book, but I got to read it on my way to Auschwitz on the plane ride there, and it had so much more impact. It was awesome. The quote that you included from him says, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we're challenged to change ourselves. So true. Your blog post reads, I said recently there are two things I would never do, get a divorce or an abortion. Sure, my religion forbids them, but that has almost nothing to do with my reasoning. It's because both of them force me to rise to the occasion, to mature, alter my perspectives and priorities, to grow. I'm not someone who could move forward peacefully knowing I quit something that would have made me better. Oh, maybe that's why my religion forbids them. You said religion forbids these things. Which religion are you talking about? So we're Protestant Christian. And when I say forbids, it's kind of a a poke at way at the way that a lot of us in the church grew up, which was being given rules without perhaps the reasoning behind them. So what I see happens a lot among my age, my peer group, is a tendency to rebel against those principles that we see in Scripture. But I don't think that it's the principles themselves that we rebel against. I think it's the lack of understanding that those principles are founded in a loving God who has our best interest in mind. So the way that I've been looking at it recently is not, okay, I believe these things and I believe in these rules that God gives us because he said so. I look at it as if he created us and loves us, then the things that he outlays as an ideal way of living are also going to work for our benefit. So I've taken a few years off, you could say, in terms of my spiritual life to step away from some of the dogma biases attached to some of the experiences in churches that we've been through. And I've revisited it all this year with a clean slate to look at it and question, does this make sense? If God made this system, then I don't need to be afraid of looking at other sources or even other science, religion, etc. If God made the system, then truth isn't going to be afraid of being scrutinized. It's going to hold up if it's true. Another blog post I wanted to share, purpose, to focus and to solve. So one of these deals with more spirituality, the other one seems more logic-focused, and I just felt that it was right to include both to show maybe your versatility. So the blog post reads, the function of the mind is twofold, to focus and to solve problems. Is that something you've written? Okay. When it finds neither to do, it drops a level to chatter. It is actively seeking a problem to solve, a matter to focus on. 
it will literally create problems because it's not being put to use for a higher purpose. My application is that to free ourselves from disillusionment and anxiety, this chatter and spiraling from make-work projects and the addiction to try to control or criticize other people, we must discipline ourselves to pursue a focus, something lasting, and to find a worthy problem, then work to solve it. This is why first world governments, banks, school administrations, town permitting departments, and membership boards for fancy golf courses, for example, take months to come to simple decisions and bog us, bog us all down with rules, paperwork, laws about how we must speak and think and how, to, how thick our drywall must be. Basically, the bureaucracy of exists to make certain people feel important. That's my own comment there. There simply aren't any real problems. This is back to Laurel. There simply aren't any real problems, but from a physical level all the way up to a relational and spiritual level, all of our brains, including theirs, need stimulation and purpose. In the absence of these things, we descend into pursuit of their counterfeits, control, and criticism. And I think we saw a lot of this, this is me talking, during COVID, of course, when people were sitting around and on Facebook and all the apps all day and criticizing and yeah, it just got out of hand. What prompted you to write this article and do you still feel the same way? Give me your thoughts. I definitely still feel the same way. It was inspired by Ben Bergeron, who trains some of the fittest athletes in the world, the CrossFit Games athletes, and has an excellent podcast himself called Chasing Excellence. And the reason I liked it so much was that it provided an insight into a biological reason why we tend toward anxiety, which is we have it so easy in the first world that we have so much free time and neurological space we don't really know what to do with ourselves. So if we were hunting for our meals, if we didn't know where the next meal was coming from, if we didn't know where we were going to sleep that night, things like that, we wouldn't necessarily have time to find an enemy or stress for six hours about what someone at the grocery store said to us that day. So it was inspired, I suppose, by conversations I had been having with my friends who also we're revealing some of their anxieties and insecurities, and we were trying to figure out why, given all of the opportunities that we've been provided in such a affluent society that we both grew up in, why do we still tend toward anxiety and depression and the chatter and all of these things? And to me, it was empowering to look at it from a neurological level and realize that there's biology at play you naturally spin into this and perhaps the way out of it is to find a worthy problem to solve or a worthy skill to master something to put your energy towards that creates rather than just consuming. You said it creating is so intrinsically rewarding and I've never considered myself a creator, never thought I would create anything in my life. I was an athlete of course, when you're young, you want to be a professional athlete. But I was a jock. I started chasing women, you know, when I got old enough to do so. And didn't do well in school, grade-wise. But 
you have to create more than you consume, I believe. If it's not creating, it's serving. And then others who have, if I think about their side hustle, it's creating programs for people who play football or aspire to play college football, which he just did. And that creation process means so much more to him than what his job provides, which to him seems just like a paycheck. I can relate. It's so interesting. I worked, I chased money. My goal was to make more and more money every year. And now suddenly when I don't need the money, I get to create, whether it's a podcast, a blog post, or help someone else create something that they're passionate about. The rewards are, like I said, like intrinsically overpowering, empowering. Do it. You can do it at any age. In sports right now, it's very popular to focus on the process. And I don't know if that started from Nick Saban, if he was the first to say it. But that's who I think of when I think of focus on the process. So what that tells me is focus on the play at hand. That's the most important play of your life because it's the next one. And let the results speak for themselves. In other words, don't worry about the scoreboard. And those people usually have the most success. I used to get caught up sometimes, like I remember playing at the University of Alabama, and there were so many people in the stands that I thought about, and I wouldn't do this at home where I went to a smaller school, we'd average probably 500 people a game. So once you get thousands of people in the stands, I remember thinking of how I looked to them and totally screwed myself. And so I've got to focus on the process. I've got to focus on the pitcher. And I even skipped some of my habits. So before I would get into the batter's box, I had this eye routine because as a hitter, it's so important to trust your hands and to trust your eyes. So I'd have this eye exercise that I would do and I would have this hand exercise that I would do. And then when we played at Alabama, forgot about it. I was thinking about how I looked to people in the stands. And that's so stupid. But I really like what you said there and how you described it being process oriented versus outcome oriented. And another thing I learned from Ben Bergeron is that he won't know until 10 years after the competition whether or not he was successful with his athletes, because his mode of coaching isn't did they win that match? It's what kind of people did they learn to be? Did they learn to dominate their own minds? Did they learn to delineate between what they can control versus what they can't? Do they have balance is an overused term, but are they people who didn't ruin their relationships in favor of the game? All of these character things that make for a great athlete beyond the game. Funny you say that because When I'm Zoom coaching, one of the things I show them, and I've just come up with this in the last few months, but I'll show them my hand with five fingers, and we set goals in five categories. And I say, you can become a multimillionaire, and therefore, you're successful in 
business slash finance, which is one of the five important categories of life. And I've got all my five fingers up. So I leave that up. But you failed in your relationship. You got a divorce or cheated or screwed around, you know, whatever you did. You haven't seen your best friend in six months. You haven't talked to him on the phone, much less seen him. So that goes down. So let's throw the thumb down. That's one of the fingers. You lost in relationships. You didn't accomplish your goals for that year, which may have been to at least see your friend twice a year, every six months. Another category would be spirituality. You want to pray or meditate 10 minutes a day, every day. You failed more than you succeeded. So you probably did it 22 weeks out of 52 weeks. So I'm going to throw down the ring finger. Anyway, what ends up happening is, wow, you're a multimillionaire. The only finger left sticking up is the middle one. That's it. So it's F you to everything else in life. Do you think that's a successful life? It's not. And so that's why we're holistic in our approach. I could have been a FIRE coach, which is an acronym for Financial Independence Retire Early, which is what I did, and found myself bored by just talking about real estate. And I said, what did I do between the ages of 22 and 35 that got me here? And it's all done in my journal. So all of my clients have a journal, and that's where they put their goals. That's where they put the 4S exercise That's where they write every day if they can. And I tell them the habit's more important than what they write in there. So write something down and you'll get better at it over time. And you'll look back 12 years from now and you'll laugh at yourself. But that's what growth feels like. When you feel stupid, that's growth. And I just shared this story with one of my clients recently. How from 2010 to 2022, I beat myself up because there were $80,000 houses available. Why didn't I get two of them, put 40K here and 40K there, and those houses are now worth 225? dollars I'd have $450,000 worth of equity, right? Well, I was at the storage unit with my wife and looking through one of my old journals from, let's say, October 2010, and it said, geez, how hard is it to get a property? What does a Jigga have to do? What does Hove have to do? These are all Jay-Z's nicknames he gives himself. And I give them to myself every once in a while. And I'll probably delete that. But the point of the story is, it said there that I tried. I tried like hell to get that second property and I just couldn't do it. It was too competitive. There were 15 other offerers prospective buyers. One of them was probably BlackRock who has bottomless pockets and you're not going to win and they can close in two weeks with cash. That was like taking an alligator off my back. I'm from South Louisiana and I'm so glad that I had written that down. Otherwise, I would have lived the next 50 years, hopefully I get another 50, with that alligator on my back. And it was this big relief. And I'm so glad that I kept a journal because I tried to get two properties and it just didn't happen. So write things down. You're not going to remember things. Don't trust your memory is the bottom line. 
Yes, and two things that come to mind with that. One is stop lying to yourself that you don't need to write this down and you'll remember it. That's another reason I started writing again this year. And the other one, to the point of your story, the alligators off your back, which is when you really look back and you're tempted to regret something or wish you made a different decision, really ask yourself if you could have made a different decision or made a different move, because chances are good that given the circumstances in your life at the time, or given what you knew at the time, you made the best decision you could. So there's really no point in getting trapped in the regret cycle. I'm glad you said that, because I sent a text to one of my clients the other day that said, never let the future disturb you. You will meet it if you have to, with the same weapons of reason which today arm you against the present. It's sort of the reverse of what you're talking about. It's future-focused, as opposed to, you made the decision at that time, seven years ago, with all of the reason, all of the smarts that you had at that time. You made that decision for a reason. Trust that and move on. The past, for the most part, unless you can make it useful for you, is an aberration. It only exists in your mind. When you're gone, it's gone. So if you don't need it there, get rid of it. And a lot of times guys are better than girls at this, but compartmentalize as best as you can. I think of it as the tile roof. When I was in elementary school at St. Joseph in Thibodeau, Louisiana, shout out to my Thibodeau peeps but they had tiles on the roof. So you either stared at the clock or you stared at the ceiling. I was a ceiling guy because I felt like time moved faster if you looked at the tiles rather than the, the clock. I think that that's wise. That's prudent advice for you up-and-comers if I have any sixth graders listening. But there's 80-something tiles on the ceiling. The way I think is that if something is bothering me, or something like what we're talking about, I can take it and put it behind, like those tiles, you just pop them up and you could hide something in there, right? If you were a mafioso, you'd probably put the cocaine there or the money. So I can compartmentalize in my brain that way. And the reason I said that men tend to be better is because, well, it's true. I mean, uh, uh, women sometimes get consumed by things and... If you can learn to compartmentalize, it will make your life so much easier and then call things to your prefrontal cortex when you need them. Open up, pop that tile and say, oh, hey, come here. You might be useful to me right now. I agree with what you're saying that there's a tendency for men's brains to work in that compartmented way. But the thing is that if you only stay in the compartments, if you learn something over in this compartment that could actually help compartment number 80 over on the other side of the room, maybe you need the feminine energy to figure out how to connect those two things so that the learning you're doing over here can become interdisciplinary and can connect to all the other things. So for me, I learn a lot of lessons in the gym that then I take out to my spiritual life, to my home life, to how I deal with my mind, to learning, oh, I can do hard things when I don't feel like it. Limits are arbitrary, all of these different things. But then I also am now learning the value of being fiercely present wherever you are. So you can go deep, get the most out of whatever interaction you're having at that moment. 
That's the compartmentalization. Be fully here. However, when you go home and you have time to decompress, open up the other boxes and connect it to that box because chances are good you will have learned something that you can now and go and fix a bunch of the things that you had locked up. That's introspection where you can sit alone with your thoughts or get on a bike. For some reason, my mind goes crazy with ideas or reflections when I get on a bike. Some people, it's a long walk, and that can help me too. But yes, connecting dots that way, I can totally see that being beneficial. And sure, we all have masculine and feminine tendencies. My focus being the masculine is because I am a male and I feel like too many males are abdicating their role as a male leader in the home, for example. And I've seen too many men call their wife the boss or I got to check with the boss. And I feel bad if you're in that relationship. I don't know but it's just a small disagreement if you are anyway, but it just bothers the, you, you're not because you're religious, right? So I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I think the masculinity has been sucked out of boys. And I think schools are tailored for girls to be successful. I had a former podcast guest, Ted Agon, texted me the other day and he said, you're always talking about manning up. He said, don't you think men, and I'm paraphrasing, men need to step up here as it pertains to education. And he sent me a couple of links, and it was about the success that women were having and how they were two-thirds, I may be exaggerating, of college graduates. And I just replied and said, women pretty much control the school system. You don't think they're going to allow boys to succeed more than girls. That's just not something that would happen. So I do think we've given women power to where the pendulum may have swung too far. And I can give you so many examples of being kicked out of Starbucks a few weeks ago just because women have power and can do that. I've been kicked out of three Starbucks now. Well, which story would you like to hear? So the latest one, well, they're all pertinent. They all have to do with men imitating women. So this was a flamboyant guy who was cock gazing, if you know what that is. The other one had to do with a girl in her, I assume to be early 20s, who is just awkward and doesn't know how to communicate. These are, again, young 20-somethings. They went to school where they had a safe space, and men probably didn't enter that safe space. And so I just think that if there's somebody that's going to bring the masculinity back, it's somebody who doesn't have to worry about getting fired from a job, for example. So I'm going to take the lead there. You want to hear about the other one? Okay, you know what a cock gazer is? Someone who's trying to see it. So at Starbucks, it's a one hitter. There's not a trough or two places where you can pee. 
It's just one, and I kept my foot on the door and peed where I could see my bag and my laptop, which was near the door, so it'd be easy to steal. So I wanted to be able to see it. Well, I would bet a lot of money that that guy saw me go to the bathroom just based on his flamboyance and how he talked to me and looked at me and things like that. So he came to the bathroom. He know he works there. So he knows it's a one hitter. And when he saw me, when, oh, 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 I'm sorry, you know, whatever. And I flushed the toilet and went back to my my seat real quick because I knew there's a, I didn't have to wash my hands. There's hand sanitizer pumps everywhere. So I just figured I would do that. But I wanted to see what he would do. Well, what he did was went and complained to the manager that I peed with the door open. And I think he did that because he feared that I would tell on him for gazing. So the manager came to me. Again, this is a woman who had power, who had the power to throw me out if she wanted to. And she told me she was going to We were staying with my in-laws at the time, so I had gone there almost every day. She knew me, and again, I was like, hey, Serena, like, you know me, we're we're tight, you know? And she was like, I know, Brad, but could you just do this for me this one time, you know? And I'm like, yeah, no problem. And the flamboyant guy goes, we will call the constables. And I always buy the constables drinks there. I mean, they all know me. And I'm not saying they all know me, but... I'm not going to let a cop buy his own drink at a Starbucks. So, like, I kind of hoped that they would. So, I took my time, and I'd look over at him and see if he was going to do anything. They didn't. But anyway, those are the last two stories of me getting kicked out of Starbucks. That was very interesting. Um, I need to clarify, I'm not in a relationship where the masculine and feminine dynamics are switched. My husband is definitely a leader, and that's one of the reasons that we have a good thing going. Having nothing to do with our religion, though, because I have to say, Brad, that these problems are similar in the church because I think there's a misunderstanding of what it means to be meek or what it means to be loving. And it means don't be strong, don't know who you are. So as an abdication of the masculine roles in our society, which I think has been perpetrated a lot through the media and whoever controls the narratives, if you make it wrong to be truly masculine, well, there's a void that has to be filled. I don't think these women that are stepping up in these boss roles are necessarily happy. They're filling a space that has to be filled because somebody's got to get it done. And currently, given the current political climate, they're emboldened by the powers that be. But the problem is, is nobody has yet seen a society where there are no men or the men have all been destroyed. But that's where we're heading unless somebody adjusts. Now, that's not to say women can't be strong. My life is weightlifting and I have four kids. And what I've realized that in order to embody any kind of feminine energy, I have to be strong. I have to work on my inner core so that I'm not able to be, so that my value isn't attached to male validation or any of these things. But that doesn't mean kick down the men. That means that by me keeping my eyes in my own lane and becoming the best person I can, it gives them room to become what they're meant to be too. And true masculinity 
There's a reason men are built 30% larger, 30% more lung capacity, can lift heavier naturally. You know, I train male clients all the time, and I'm generally the strongest woman in any gym that I walk into. But within two months of training with me, all my male clients are going to outlift me by far because their physical capacity is built to be stronger. And I think that's for a reason. And that is because they need to spearhead and they need to protect there is a protect and serve role for men, absolutely, but I would agree with some of what you said in that there's no outlet for that in our society right now. It's all frowned upon as toxic masculinity, and so then the women have to step up and be toxically feminine, and now it's just a whole big mess. And this is the Jordan Peterson thing. It's, we need men who will be men, but then I would add, so that the women can be women. We need each other to have any kind of a healthy society. So I'm going to ask you, what do you think the solution looks like? How do we veer off of this self-destruct path and get to a place of healthy balance? It's going to come from leaders. I coach masculinity, really. Everything that the five categories is moving toward is building confidence in men. And I think confidence is important for men. And I talk about the polarity of the sexes and how important that is and that it's the man's role to help maintain that. If you want a successful marriage, you're going to have polarity in your marriage. So I think getting them to financial independence, which is their goal, they can then speak their mind. I remember somebody saying, Trump speaks like somebody who's never had a boss. So get to a place where you can speak like you don't need a boss, and then you can speak your mind, and it's helpful. It'll be the truth. So DeSantis has that, I don't care what you think of me, I'm going to speak my mind, I'm going to tell the truth. And when I talked about the pendulum swinging too far, earlier we got to a place of my truth. And when that's being taught in the school system, you're going to have 24-year-old guys at Starbucks talking about their truth. And we can't have that. When a hurricane hits Lake Charles and Houston and people need to be rescued in the boats, count the women that are in those boats rescuing people. Masculinity is needed. And you're right. If it were to hit the Shan and the plumbing were to go out and the electricity grid were to go out, the women aren't going to rush out there. And this speaks exactly to the blog post that you just wrote, which is that we've had it so easy. And so the left, the media, the whoever is in charge has fabricated a problem, punctured a wound into society, and now they're presenting themselves as the solution. Because we've never had real problems. And I mean, thank God in our lifetime. But this is the consequence of good times create weak men. Weak men create bad times. Now we have to have strong men in order to create good times again. I mean, if it hasn't hit the Shen as bad as it could yet, but the trajectory is worrisome. So then I have a question for you as well. It sounds like you're very clear on the role of men in a healthy masculine embodiment. What is the role of women in that ideal scenario? Supportive. I think women are naturally good with kids in a way that men are not. And this is easily observable when you get one of them in a room 
with a two-year-old and then ask that man to leave the room and then get a woman in the room with a two-year-old. Every time we drop our kid off at the gym, there's a play area and they watch them, you know, babysit them. It's always a woman. And if it were a man, I don't know that I'd be comfortable dropping my one-and-a-half-year-old off. She's almost two off with the man. He's just not going to be as naturally good with kids. So the woman's role, as I said, supportive would be, that's the first thing that comes to mind, respectful. That goes both ways, but it's different. Man, I hate to talk about my dating career, but the way it changed between the age of 23 and 33 was nuts like a total 180, like women getting into the car texting somebody else. And it's like, how do you not know better not to do that? Well, they've never been told. They've never been put in their place. It's like I work with some former athletes who will say, let me ask you a question, Brad. And I'll say, you ask me a question. They had a guy the other day who told me that he had a task to do but then used the word ax. He used the, the task word correctly and used ask incorrectly. And I'm like, do you realize that you just did that? That's crazy. And he's like, whoa, yeah, I did. So anyway, who's going to call the football player out? Like when the football player's talking after the game to the woman who's interviewing him and he keeps calling her man. I don't know, man. You know, when I scored that touchdown, man, it's like, Somebody's got to tell him, hey, stop calling her man. If nobody corrects him, then he's going to keep doing it. And so it's the same with women. If nobody corrects her, she's going to keep doing it. And so she needs to, I call it, put her in her place, call it whatever you want. But most women have been coddled. And Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And he believes it started around 2013 Like at the height of when I was dating, I was born in 80, so that's 33 years old. These women have been so coddled, and it's hard to witness because the arrogance that comes with it, with the likes and the comments and the lack of eye contact, why would they make eye contact with anyone when they're getting all this action online? I disagree with how we got to that place. I agree that we've gotten to a problematic place, but I don't agree with how we got there. Because being the woman, if I were to act like that, it's a trauma response at never being treated right because nobody has embodied masculinity that is present, respectful, strong, forthright, knows who they are, leads spearheads is dealing with their own inner turmoil has made eye contact with me that's a big one it's not a matter of arrogance on the woman's side it's a matter of her own self-confidence has been shattered because she has never been treated right because the men have been so beaten down that they can't look anyone in the eye So it is not a disrespect. And to be put in her place is only going to further that message. It's only going to further that message that I'm dominant, you're submissive, you're basically not worth being kind to, or really getting to know you. Because again, me from the woman's side, as soon as someone gives me eye contact, 
life-changing because I grew up in a society where that was not the thing. I grew up in a family where that was not a thing. So I never expected someone would be curious to get to know me or would actually value what I had to say or would actually, I don't respond well being put in my place because it just feels like that's not a way to get someone to flourish in their femininity. That's like putting them in a box where they have no choice but to kick against the walls. So in my view, the way to find feminine flourishing is by providing reliable safety and embodying confidence and respect and curiosity, no matter what the woman is doing, because we learn from example. If we watch you conducting your life in a way that we truly respect, where you're leading in your life, and I had this conversation with my husband and a number of my friends recently, is that we don't respond well to being told what to do. Because again, we're creations of God. And we as men and women are made to go and make things better in the world. We all have this drive to progress. And then we're told, hey, you're doing it wrong. Stop that. We're like, that doesn't feel right on a visceral level. That's disrespect. That's that's going back into punishment and shame. Whereas what pulls us forward into being respectful, into being feeling safe so that we can put our phone away and look the guy in the eye is seeing an embodiment of somebody who is unmanipulatable and has his eyes on his progress and conquering his demons. That's someone we can follow. As soon as he turns his eyes onto us and tells us how to fix ourselves, we're like, we don't respect you anymore because you're not running your own race. You're trying to run mine. So how can I follow that? There's nothing to follow because, again, it's like weirdly about me and I'm weirdly in control and I don't want to be in control of your life. I don't want that. I know we can come across as controlling and trying to fix things. And that's where the nurturer instinct of trying to be on top of what our kids are doing gets conflicted. But we only do that to the men in our lives because there's this subtle shift where if the men are not focused on conquering their own quest in their life, and they've flipped all of this power onto, you need to treat me this way, and you need to do it this way, and you need to run the home this way. And we're like, you're not giving me anything to follow. Like, you're not embodying you so that I can embody who I'm meant to be. So there's a real need for autonomy, even within a marriage, where the wife isn't doing things for her husband to take work away from him, because what that ends up resulting in is this codependency where the husband is like, oh, there's no pain points in my life. There's no dragons to slay. So now, again, the focus of the brain is to solve. We have to find a problem to solve. So we turn inward to our home. Let's fix this. Let's put our woman in our place. Let's da-da-da-da-da. Maybe all her heart is desperately waiting for is somebody, and in, in old school language, who is out there slaying dragons, that she knows she's safe to now run her race and be respectful and come alive and thrive because he's not making his behavior dependent on her behavior. So I guess if I was to summarize that, it would be that women, at least me, I follow those who lead by example. I don't follow those who tell me what to do. If they're embodying true thriving and living in their design and conquering their demons, I'm like, that is such a sigh of relief because now I have permission to do the same in my life and no one's trying to control each other. And now I can embody that exact respect that you're looking for. But I think that even 
when I was a kid, the boys in the neighborhood and whatnot would be playing cowboys and Indians and shooting each other with various types of toy guns and stuff. And over the last 20, 30 years, that has completely gone away out of vogue. You can't play with guns, blah, blah, blah. But this is just an example of how masculinity has been taken out of our culture. Men, boys are born with this innate need to conquer and kill and get shit done. But it's been beat out out of our society. And so I'm probably repeating myself by this point, but because the masculinity has been so beat to a pulp, there's a huge factor missing in all of these relationships. And that's why it looks like the women are being disrespectful. But again, all they're doing is acting out of their loneliness and just waiting for somebody to be strong enough to have their eyes on their own race so that they can follow and run their race. You make some good points, but we're not only not on the same page, we're not even reading the same book or in the same library because I started this conversation with dating as a 33-year-old. And you're talking about, you're coming from a place of, I've been married for how long? 10 years? Four kids? If somebody gets in your car, you've been dating for three months that flew in from Dallas to Houston and you ask them how their workday was, and they're on Instagram, and they message somebody instead of making eye contact with you, and I'm going to wait until you're done, or I pick you up for a second date and want to have a conversation with you. Obviously, I wouldn't have asked you about a second time, and you're texting with your ex-boyfriend about clothes that have been left at your apartment that's what i'm talking about putting somebody in their place and i would say that has nothing to do with dating because my friends all do it so that's the disintegration of the attention span in society that we're also dealing with see i can't believe you just said that or admitted to so statistically we have a six second attention span in our society now and you can blame that on you know instagram and tiktok and twitter and even you know news articles have gotten shorter and shorter and shorter and nobody reads the full this has been coming for 30 years because our attention is the commodity of the companies. So it shows up most painfully in romantic relationships. But if you look around at a family out to dinner, they're all on their phones. Teenagers, they're not out doing things. They're staring at their phones when they're out with each other. So I would still stand by my argument that the specific situations you're describing, that person is acting out of trauma. And that trauma is she's never been looked in the eye by anybody, why would she expect anything different? It's not an arrogance or a being put in their place. It's, uh, oh shit, we have a society where nobody's being treated as valuable. Interesting. Yeah. So I always thought that it would be easy to date once I got into my 30s, but it became so hard. And maybe it's because of this trauma that you're talking about. But I've dealt with my own trauma And so perhaps if I'm dating someone who has dealt with their own trauma, I'm looking for the same sort of resilience. But I'm always going to put a woman like the the fat girl at Starbucks. Get the fuck away from me loud enough so everybody could hear it. Am I supposed to say, 
yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I don't, I don't even deserve to be in your presence, 22-year-old. She even told me as I was leaving, why don't you go read a book or something? I don't even know what to say about that. It's like telling the HVAC technician like what Fahrenheit means. I'm looking at the AC on the wall. But you get what I'm saying. Like, no, we need to start putting women in their place. Like, that's what I'm going to start. If I'm on a second date and a woman gets into the car and I'm not her top priority that night, she's going to be told something to where hopefully, maybe this is the altruism in me, the next guy won't have to deal with the same shit. Possibly. But the verse that's coming to mind is this idea of we shouldn't be so busy trying to fix everyone else's life if we still have stuff in our own life. So this is what I mean, like a lesson I've been learning this year about running my race and just like taking radical personal responsibility for whether it's my trauma, my tendencies, the words I use, how I show up. So for instance, with this phone example and the friends that are always picking up the phones, my way of doing it now is I'm working on this, admittedly not perfect in some situations, but if I'm out with somebody, even if they're picking up their phone, don't pick up mine. If I'm in the middle of talking and they pick up their phone, I pause and wait. And I just put this subtle pressure on to hopefully layer by layer, set a boundary where I'm not reaching into someone else's life and telling them, hey, don't act like that. Because that's control. And that doesn't work. Again, it's like people will automatically resist it. And it doesn't make you look good either. But all I can control is what I do in those situations. And even being okay with me with being misunderstood or not having the last word. Sometimes we have to be okay with that and just know that we're standing in our integrity. And I think how we change the world is by working on changing ourselves. And I think of a quote too about Jordan Peterson that's like, don't let a man think he can rule a city unless his house is in perfect order. It's like we can't yeah, and it's so easy for us to see all these problems in everyone else's life, but then maybe the reason they bother us is because we need to do some introspection and just put the blinders on and be like, okay, I can fix this in my life and that's it. Again, process-oriented versus outcome-oriented. We can't control if that person ever decides to change. Most likely we'll get resistance if we tell them off, but we can exemplify something else. Fair enough. But yeah, we do see the world totally differently. I, I remember having a conversation with a black dude at the at the gym, and I asked him what his dad had taught him to say when he encounters a police officer. And he said, name and badge number, sir. I said, that's what you were taught? Are you kidding me? He said, oh, absolutely. You can't take risks out there. Like in this environment, and I'm, I'm like, do you ever look at stats or, or anything like that? And he's like, do you know what it's like growing up as a black man or whatever? And I'm like, your parents are married, right? Yeah. You have a degree? Yeah. Where'd you go to school? Rice. That's like an Ivy League of the South. You have an MBA? Yeah. Pretty good job? Yeah. My dad left when I was 11. Do you think you had a tougher upbringing than I did? I mean, no way he had a tougher upbringing than I did. There's no fucking way. But he's black. You and I would never agree on the masculine feminine, I don't think, because it 
did sound like when you were talking about the feminine that you got defensive and took the woman's side, which is not unusual. The women in my family do that. They don't, it's, it's not objectively monitoring a conversation as Jordan Peterson is really good at doing, but taking a side, no? No, I don't think I'm taking a side. I think in the situation that you described, it's more about, well, I'm thinking about the Starbucks example with, with the girl and assuming I'm taking the woman's side. I'm definitely not because what I'm trying to do, well, is what we're doing here, which is having a conversation where different perspectives can be explored at length so that we can all learn something. Because kind of like what you're saying with this black guy that you interviewed, everyone has such a different upbringing. And so all I'm trying to do is rather than judging either your comments or her comments or anybody's comments, it's like, I like to bring a curiosity of interesting what brought them to where they'd want, like where that's uh, their chosen okay. attitude. The trauma word bothers me. Oh, interesting. Talk to me about why that's a trigger word so, for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I've never used the word triggered because I'm older than you. I'm going to be 43. So we're going to be so much different. I would never have called what I've been through trauma. It was just a life situation that I had to deal with. My dad left. You know, you just, you deal with it. You man up. You're the man of the house. That sort of thing. The trauma that you talk about these girls dealing with is, it's almost assuming every female has trauma. And no, it's like I've dated probably, I've dated a lot. I didn't get married until I was 38. So you can imagine how many women I've heard talk about how stressful their job is and then compared it to EMS or internal medicine, like ER doctor or so many other jobs where like your job is truly probably not in the top 1200 in terms of stress. But you had trauma today at work. It's anxiety and all of that is overused. Uh, I do agree that the word is overused. But the reason that I chose it is because the more people I've talked to over the last couple of years, the more I do believe that disconnection and loneliness is a collective trauma. Because I see this segmented society where as soon as you said eye contact, you want to talk about trigger words? It's like that was a trigger word for me. Because I realized as soon as I started having in-depth conversations, whether it was with my friends, well, generally my friends, that I was like, wait a second, there's a reason that I've had anxiety my whole life. And that's because I didn't receive it. And then I started looking around and how we went through COVID and how there were so many breakups and there was so much isolation and there was so much disconnection that we and then, of course, cell phones coming up over the last 12 years or so. We've never been more connected, but we've also never been more isolated. So while I agree that trauma is overused and you have a lot of connections attached to that word, the way I define it is very different. And I would maintain that there's a collective common trauma in our society for men and women that we've been so disconnected and so isolated and never really been able to be fully received, fully get to know someone else. 
it's almost like the phenomenon of Twitter that we were talking about where conversations used to be like this. Mm-hmm. Each side got to talk, got to explore. There was patience on the other side for the other person to actually hear you. And then over the last 15 or so years, that has gotten shorter and more interrupted and something's always beeping or pinging or whatever. And so there's this this frustration that has built up, I think, in the psychology of everyone that a lot of us have given up, even knowing what we believe, because we've never had the time and patience to figure it out, introspect, talk to somebody who's willing to listen at length for it. So from a psychological standpoint, it's like the examples you used with the texting, I don't see as being specific to dating. I see it all over the place, all over the place. Trauma isn't just having your leg chopped off or seeing somebody die. Trauma is a wound that affects your day-to-day life or it's a belief that affects your day-to-day life. And often you don't know why it's there. There's a quote by Carl Jung that says, until we make the unconscious conscious, it dictates our life and we call it fate. And I do think that there are these threads of trauma. In this case, what I'm talking about, there's a loneliness and an isolation gap in the hearts of almost everybody. It's an epidemic. And the more people I talk to, the more they're like, I just don't feel understood by anybody. I feel like the odd one out here, 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 here. And when you have that belief, when that's been your experience, even if you go and get in a car with a guy who seems really interested, you're not really going to believe that you can fully show up without being rejected. Because everything you see in society around you is, okay, I'll pay attention to you for 10 seconds, and then I'll get bored and... I'm done. That's so awesome. I think it's extremely common, men and women. Yeah, it's a function of age and it's a function of apps and options and it's terrible. And yeah, it really was, I think, exacerbated during those years when I took off to travel. So April 2015 and then really came back 2020 and being like, this is not the world that I left. And I can't even communicate with people in their early 20s. I met a guy at the gym last night and just tried to have a conversation with him, and he could not maintain eye contact. But it's people in their 40s, too. I I had a conversation with a relative the other night, and I'm telling her a story, and she halfway through the story, just totally stopped listening. And I'm pretty concise. I don't tell 12-minute stories. So I said, oh, did you not want to hear the story? And she goes, oh, no, go ahead, tell your story. And I'm like, well, no, I, I said, I'm going to be with a guy later who does that too. I'll just wait for that. I'll tell him the story. And I'm trying to be funny, but I know that she doesn't want to hear it, so I'm not going to waste my time or my breath. And nobody values their time more than me is what I like to say. I mean, I really, really value my time. And a lot of that has to do with having taken time off. So anyway, that guy I saw that night, and I was telling him a story And I was, I don't know, 40 seconds into it. And all of a sudden, he saw these two guys behind him. And he hit him and starts talking to him and completely turns his back to me. And then, so this was just like a, hey, what's up, for five, ten seconds. And then he turns back around. And then he looks at my daughter's shirt. And he plays and says, that's such a cute shirt. And I said, did you not want to hear the end of my story? And he goes, no, 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 tell your story. 
And I'm like, what? I don't want to now. And he goes, come on, tell your story. And I'm like, no, dude, I'm not going to waste my breath with somebody that doesn't want to hear my story. Like, how do they not get that? But he doesn't get it. And so I didn't tell the story. So like when you told the story earlier, it's so funny to hear it from somebody who's 34, because to me, that's so obvious. If you're telling a story and somebody is texting and you pause, to me, that is so obvious. I mean, that's like interpersonal communication 101, because I've had so many guys since I've become the lowest rung of a public figure that there is, but people will invite me to coffee and they'll be texting while I'm answering their question. And I won't answer their question. And then it doesn't take long until I'm out of there. I just value my time that much. So anyway, when you said that, I was thinking, oh, well, of course. Yeah. But you're like, yeah. So I'll pause. And I'm like, yeah, of course you pause. So imagine growing up in a society where you don't know any different except for constant fragmentation. But that's what we're dealing with now. I think, and I'm observing, that there's a slow awakening happening, as indicated by popularity of shows like Joe Rogan's and yours and all of these long-form conversations, is that people are beginning to realize how fragmented their attention and their ability to communicate has become. A lot of times people won't even remember why they started talking about what they're talking about. But like, try and put yourselves in the shoes of somebody who hasn't ever experienced quality communication and then wonder why people are so distractible. My mistake had always been inferring a meaning onto their behavior as having to do with, oh, I'm not interesting enough or I'm not valuable enough or I don't bring enough to the table or blah, blah, blah. All of these self-deprecating beliefs that ran my life for a long time. And I've come around now to realize, wait a second, we just rewired society by putting a phone in everyone's hand. That's all it is. We've ruined our attention span. And so to get it back, well, it means really choosing your company, first of all. And it means doing your best to retrain your own focus. Yeah. So you have to choose your inner circle. And I'm doing this with my coaching clients. You don't have what is a wedding party, typically six people as a man, you don't have six guys that would dare take their phone out during lunch with you and not at least apologize. But usually they'll tell you before your lunch with them, hey, I might get a phone call from my boss. If so, I need to take it. I apologize, man. No problem. They get that phone call. Yeah, it's easier to weed people out maybe. But we're, again, we're from a different generation. And so can't imagine one of us doing that, like taking a phone call or texting when somebody's answering a question. That person just no longer would be your friend. But you connect. It's easy to connect with people now who are the right ones. And they might be one in a hundred, but it's that. It's like, oh, wow. When you reflect later, he didn't take his phone out. He treated me like I was the most important person in the room which is what they used to say about excellent communicators like Bill Clinton, for example. He would look at you and make you feel as though you were the most important person in the room. The reason I'm able to sit here as a retiree at 42, I studied good communication. And part of good communication is a firm handshake, eye contact, listen more than you talk, be curious about the other person, People love to talk most about themselves. Their favorite 
noise in the English language is their name. You know, you learn all these things when you want to be good. And so these are the things that I'm passing down to the younger generation. You're really reminding me, I mean, this is really good. It's really enforcing the fact that not only have people not been put in their place, and maybe that was a poor choice of words, but they don't know the correct way to be. Like, I've been on a date and been like, how do you not know not to do that? But it takes, I would say a strong man, you would say it's toxic, but it would take somebody saying, like, hey, I don't know about us going on a second date, because we're about to spend three hours together, and I could do that shit from home. But I would have probably, hopefully, established respect by then, otherwise she wouldn't be on a second date with me. Exactly. And I wouldn't automatically call it toxic because I think we've gotten to toxic femininity as well. Like, I actually agree with a lot of your points, but yeah, exactly. You wouldn't be on the second date if there wasn't some rapport already. But where I'm looking at it far broader than the dating scene in that you're generally going to catch more What's the saying? You're going to catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And to get more of the results you want, most of the time, it's going to come from leading by example. And most likely, that girl in the situations you're describing just has never seen it exemplified. Now, I would also agree with you, and I wouldn't say strong men are toxic. That's what we're all waiting for. We're all waiting for somebody to be strong enough. Yeah, we're all waiting for women to be feminine. Which they can't be unless somebody is spearheading and being the leader. They can't be. There's too many gaps to fill. They have to step in and fix. But we're, we're all desperately waiting for men to embody the principles that we want to follow and we want to be inspired by. It's so interesting because coming up, it was like you had to develop yourself to attract a 9 or a 10. Whereas I felt like I got there and it didn't mean anything like they still were better than you because they had 284 likes on their selfie. And who am I? Like I have 14 friends on my Instagram. That's the world changed. The world has changed. A lot of people still look at the externals for their validation and to measure their success. But that's not the people I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who who want reality in their relationships and want authentic connection. Whether we know it or not, we're waiting for somebody to embody the strength that it takes for us to be able to breathe and embody the femininity that the world also needs and that our children also need. And it takes both. It really takes both. And you may encounter it in a small town. I'm not encountering it in big cities. Now, I'll encounter it around the world, which is why I tell my young single clients, guys, I have two, three female clients, but most of them are guys. I say, if you get married without traveling outside of this continent, you're doing yourself a huge disservice because the women do know how to treat men and I would like to think that the men do know how to treat women. I was raised to open doors, and she's never picked up a check. The other day, I got in bed first, and her side of the bed was still made. And when she gets into bed, she unmakes both sides of the bed when she goes to bed first. 
And she was upset. And I said, well, you know, what's troubling you, boo? She says, uh, why didn't you unmake my side of the bed? And I said, well, I enjoy unmaking the bed. Like, that is a big thing for me. So when I go to a hotel, I like taking the, the pillows and throwing them and, and getting in bed. So it's just, the, now I know that about her. So when I get in bed first, I'm going to unmake her side of the bed. And we've been together for seven years, and I never knew that about her. And that's an interesting thing. That's kind of what we're learning in our marriage now, too, is you never fully get to know somebody, and that's what makes it interesting. And to support your point, though, about strong men... I've seen what, for the first while, it was fine. But there was a certain point in our marriage where Jeff wasn't employed and the number it did on his confidence and then that subsequently how it affected our marriage was very messy. So you sort of alluded to a question of like, what else would you have us do? The answer isn't anything for us. The answer is thrive as best you can. And be fully alive with your purpose. And that gives us room to be alive in what we're designed to be. Not in some bossy tyrant way, but in a way where we can make the home a home. And I'm not talking about job. I'm talking about purpose. I saw how his identity was attached to having something outside the home. So I'm actually supporting your point, which is when, and he didn't abdicate by choice, but there was a period of time in our lives where there was unemployment for a while mm -hmm. and it a man needs those dragons to slay outside of the home in order for him to be alive and embody that strength mm -hmm. so my point isn't getting another job my point is this is interesting because this shows the dynamic of when one partner is going through some kind of identity crisis how it affects the other one just naturally and vice versa and so to piece that together is really interesting in when you're discussing roles of men and women and how crucial it is for a man to have something outside of the home per se as a source of purpose, which then that's actually what the women look to and respect so much because it provides that person to follow. Absolutely. I've had this conversation this week actually, and it was about prioritization and her claiming that she wanted to be the priority. This is a client of mine. And I said, don't believe her. I said, she may say she wants to be number one, but she's along for the ride. You slay the dragon. She's turned on by that ambitious nature. Don't change after you get married continue to do those things that attracted her to you in the first place. And it is very hard when a man loses his job because a lot of times his identity is intertwined with his person, with his character. It's why I can't convince my doctor friend to retire early because he's a doctor. He worked hard to get there. Whereas other doctor friends of mine have been able to let go. I prided myself on how much money I made. I set a goal to make more and more money every year. The respect that you gain in the workplace by people who want to be you because they're 10 years younger than you, that goes away. Your superiors, those don't get out of your head for sometimes eight to nine months, like I'm estimating. They stay in your head because you so wanted to impress them. Women can't tell men, and that would be one of them, unfortunately. And this particular client 
told her that she was his priority. And I said, you fucked up. And you need to figure out how to go back in time. So there are a lot of precedents that need to be set. He just started dating this girl. There are a lot of precedents that need to be set early. Otherwise, you're going to come across as a phony later in the relationship. But remember what she was attracted to in the beginning is all I'll say there. What you told your client was the realization that we had in the middle of similar situations, thinking that we were being noble by, oh, you're my priority. Okay, well, then why are neither of us happy in this season of our life? (laughs) We're still individuals. Yeah, it's hard because society tells us one thing as men, and it's not true. There's a blog article, if you'll read, it's 40 pieces of life advice for my 20-year-old self. And one of them is what to pursue in a woman because society is lying to you. And it was pursue femininity, sweetness, and a willingness to be vulnerable. And that is so hard to find in a big city. Any thoughts on that? The thought I would have is that a true willingness to be vulnerable takes actually a lot of security and a lot of strength to do that especially because of the culture we've all grown up in where we haven't had that open forum to learn who we are or to feel valued necessarily because we've been lied to too. We've been lied to as well. I had a conversation with a friend of mine really recently about what society will tell men, what society will tell women. And the idea is essentially bribe her to like you, buy her all these things. She's the priority, all of these things. And it's not true. It's not true. So this is a recent lesson for for all of us. We need to have an intrinsic purpose that isn't just to make the other person happy because that turns into taking very quickly, actually, on both sides. If you're a taker, but you don't want to date or marry a, a taker, you want to both be givers, hopefully. But you're right. Women have been lied to Also, it's not as prominent as men being the suckers in sitcoms, the dummies, and it's advertising, it's sitcoms, it's movies, it's everywhere that the woman is the all-knowing, smart, I think it was Bill Maher was doing a comedy skit, and he said, if I said that men are smarter than women, the room would go quiet. But if I said women were smarter than men, there would be probably a standing ovation. And so we got to this place where women are smarter than men. Of course, of course, women are smarter than men. Well, no, we ha- we all have different intelligences. And I've said this a lot, but police forces have only been around for 200 years. So you think about how long humans have been around. You needed men. You don't need them as much anymore. But one of the things I tell my clients is that if you're going to demonstrate emotional instability, she doesn't need you because you have to be stronger than she is, emotionally speaking. The protect and provide, they're doing themselves pretty much nowadays. It used to be men had their own hierarchies, women had their own hierarchies, You come together at the end of the day, share a nice meal, maybe hump or talk at the pillow and go to sleep or take care of the kids and then do those things. Hopefully you're having 
dinner as a family. But if you think about the continuum of time and the fact that it's only 200 years that we've had police forces, if you were ostracized from the group, that meant certain death. So women had to get men to like them. And you don't see that at all anymore. I mean, I interacted with the girl behind the desk at the gym yesterday when I got my membership. No eye contact, no smile, no nothing. 240 years ago, she may need me for something. So that's changed so fast. And we're all in a box. And when I say Joe Rogan talks about this, about putting everybody in a box and expecting there not to be affairs and things like that going on where men share what's going wrong in their relationship when they're required to be in an office for nine hours a day. They spend more time with their women, we'll call them work husbands. They spend more time with those people than they do their husbands. Emotional affairs bother women so much more than it does men. Men are bothered more by physical affairs. So, All that said, you can't expect to hardwire brains in a matter of 200 years, but that's what we're trying to do. And we're failing bad. I mean, it's it's failing bad. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but... Let's also remember what happened. The suffragette movement was an interesting one, which growing up, I was like, cool, they wanted equal voter rights. It seemed simple. It was only recently I learned that Oh, the government realized there's only one taxpayer in each home. We could create two. So again, they created a problem where there was none. That's in simplistic terms. Things were working as well as in recent history, perhaps they have right before that. It was calm for two seconds. And the government's like, I see an opportunity here. Let's make the women dissatisfied with their role. We swallowed it. Lock, stock and barrel, just like we did recent narratives in society, started marching Oh, now we have two taxpayers per family. Isn't that handy? Well, I'm still in favor of the stay-at-home mom, if you haven't noticed. People are gullible. Half of society is gullible. If you take the average person and ask yourself, is that guy a dummy? In all likelihood, he's a dummy. And when you start to consider that half of people or humans are dumber than that guy, then it gets really scary because they have occupations that could mean life or death to you. Yep. That's the narrative we're being fed, but we're also being fed a narrative. It feels like that women are bitchy, naggy, actual femininity is frowned upon the things you described that in their designed state are really beautiful, have been co-opted. And I have to ask the question, what are they distracting us from? Because who's running these narratives? What are they hiding? What's the goal? Is it to create factions? As soon as you can split the people and get them fighting, and you can create a problem group over here, whoever is running the script can move in and control. And I don't think we can neglect that part of things, that the media is powerful and the narratives that we've been fed for decades now are powerful. And we need to return to what's true and what's the original design and try our best to embody it in a very twisted version of a society. (laughs) 
People aren't going to agree on what's true, though. I mean, how is it that people can agree with abortion, but then be opposed to capital punishment? I mean, how is it that you can check every single box of a political party? It, it makes no sense. And when you are that person, you think that you're normal. No, dude, you check every single box of this party. That that doesn't make you like a normal person. Like you're not the regular one and everybody else is a weirdo. No, you're one of the weirdos. You check every single box of this party. There's there's no way. Right. <laughs> so because we're all trying so hard to figure out where truth is and how can we be sure we've landed on it? How can we be so sure we've landed on it? The model of the strong man and the stay-at-home mom. How can we be so sure that we've landed on the correct model on truth? How do you know that the principles that you're passionate about the me personally and, yes mm -hmm. the roles of men and women mm -hmm. what's your criteria for going i know this is true oh well i'm just one person with an opinion and how did you land on that opinion in your own life oh it's deep yeah i mean you don't want to hear my life story but there's a reason i waited till i was almost 38 to get married there's a reason I went into sales. There's a reason I traveled the world. So let's rephrase the question. It's more like, you know, you're very passionate about the roles of men and women as you've described them and the, the broken versions of them in the society we live in, a lot of which we agree on, by the way, even if some of our definitions are different. A lot of them we agree on. And probably if we saw the embodiment of what we're both describing, we'd probably agree that it's good. But my question is, what evidence or results do you see on either the roles you're describing versus the corrupted ones that tell you, no, this is the way we need to do it? What's the criteria for truth for you? Well, for me, I gave you an example earlier about the black guy at the gym. So you're not going to get to truth. For many people, emotion overwhelms intellect. And so for those people, you're not going to convince them. It's not like I've convinced him of anything. He's going to continue, sir, I need your badge number and your first and last name. We'll start there. How do you think that cop is going to feel? So... My opinion is, is just one of seven billion. Yeah, I have what I believe is ideal that if everybody followed this model, I mean, I've, I've lived in small towns and big cities. The small town that I was raised in, those are the happiest people in America that I've been around. What are we striving for? Is it happiness? Is it to continually increase the standard of living because I'll tell you I was embarrassed when my dad my dad used to store my car at his home and would pick me up from the airport when I first started traveling I would need to come back and get some real estate deals done and I was embarrassed by the car he would pick me up in which was mine and it's because I had seen so many people get by with so much less and that money could go so much further and so I'll never spend that kind of money on a car again. I made a joke the other day about there are rap songs that talk about his and hers Ferraris. I could buy my wife and I a Ferrari. That would be the dumbest fucking thing to do. But 
we've raised the standard of living because in my nuclear family, because I worked so hard for it. And people might scoff at that, but if you spent the entire day with me from age 22 to 34, you would see, like, this dude is crazy. And it's true, I was. I I wanted to improve myself. And here's where you will disagree. Most of a woman's job is to preserve herself if I'm contrasting it with the man developing himself. Don't allow the femininity to get sucked out of you. You'll have regrets at 45. I think the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so you have female commentators on television who are the squeaky ones that are 48 who are telling you how to live a successful life because it benefits her. She'll make more money. You're going to tune in, but it's not for you. (laughs) You don't want that life because she's going home to her cats and is not happy at all. She can put on a pretty face and she looks pretty, but don't do it, ladies. (laughs) Don't do it. Visit the small towns. Go to a religious service. It's been proven that those who go from the bottom quartile of society with regard to happiness to the top quartile are those who attend church services weekly. That change in behavior changed that much of where they fell on the zero to a hundred if you divided it into quartiles. It's amazing. So I hope that you have a relationship with God. If not, give it a shot because shit works. And I believe it was Richard Feynman who said, Richard Feynman is the, he worked on the Manhattan Project, probably the, maybe one of the smartest men who's ever walked the earth. He was a physicist. He's long dead now. But he said, nobody ever figures out why we're here anyway. Enjoy yourself. It's been an interesting road to get to what seemed like matching conclusions. A little dicey at times. But that just shows how important these conversations are to explain different perspectives and realize that we all actually want the same thing. But there's been, we live in a world where it's been muddled and confused. And to your point of what you just said, there's a book I'm in the middle of reading right now called The Book That Made Your World. It's by Vishal, last name starts with a G and I can't pronounce it, but what it lays out really beautifully and intellectually, and he's from India. So he has this Easterner's point of view on the Western world. And the premise is how faith in God and the Bible and the translation of the Bible, the democratization of scripture for the everyman rather than just the elites, because the elites were using it before, you know, the Catholic Church, etc., they were the only ones who could read the scripture. And he talks in detail about the risks that the translators took to make the scriptures available to the everyman. And that actually was where the beginnings of prosperity and pulling people out of poverty and all of these things that are so good that we take for granted in our world. His premise is that it started by bringing the scriptures and those timeless principles to the populace. 
Yeah, if we're talking about happiness and money, I'm sure you've heard of the Harvard study of adult development. It's the longest running study ever, over 80 years running. And it conclusively shows again and again and again that longevity and happiness are tied to the quality of your relationships. That's numero uno. Yes. And my clients and I talk about that a lot. And it was a focal point of my wedding where I gave a groom speech, but I made to call out each of my friends that had made the trip down to Mexico because that's quite an effort and told them that I love them because I think that that's important. If you're a man that can say, I love you to another man, you're on another level. And if they don't say it back, it doesn't matter. You will live the next 50 years of your life knowing that you did. And there's something to be said for that. So you were talking about how we all want the same thing earlier. And I was going to comment that I don't know that we do. Because what you just said was relationships is what makes us happy. It's There have been studies that have shown once you get beyond $80,000 a year, there's no additional happiness that comes with the marginal dollar beyond 80000 So why do we still chase money? And it's almost like an addiction. It's power, prestige, respect, things that men want, things that I used to work for a guy that said that he would stay at the office because he felt more respected at the office. And that's scary because men do want respect the same way women want love. There's a book, Edgar Emmerich's Love and Respect, great book, highly recommended, along with the five love languages. You're looking at me like you got something to say. I would say exactly that stat that there's no further fulfillment after $80,000 is an indicator that deep down, whether we know it or not, we do want the same thing as indicated by if we had that respect, if we had that depth of relationship, maybe we chase these things and the prestige and the externals because we haven't experienced true fulfillment. So we're just, we're chasing in many, many directions. But I would, I would actually say that that's evidence that deep down and subconsciously, we are wired to need the same thing. Both men and women? Yes, I think so. Disagree. In different percentages because Uh, right those studies they don't it's men and women quality of relationships and in what you just said right if a man feels more respected that's a relationship thing at the office absolutely he's going to work hard there so it's nuanced and it's detailed and we can't put people in these like it's all this and it's all this no the biggest indicator and sort of the the circle in which the career and everything else takes place is the quality of your relationships. That's number one. But as we've talked about, if a man doesn't have a purpose outside of the home, he's not fulfilled. If a woman isn't fulfilling her purpose inside of the home or being able to embody any kind of femininity and resting in that, she's not happy. So again, it's like, let's look at the evidence. I think the most important thing is that quality of relationship. That means we can stop striving out of an emptiness. I read this on humanprogress.org this morning that hunger in the world is actually a bigger problem than climate change. And I thought, wow, that's 
crazy and and a couple years from now it may be something else that takes the lead because things are ever changing but i had a climate scientist on a few episodes ago i don't know if you you said you didn't get a chance to hear it but we had a great discussion and she decided at age 18 that she wasn't having kids and the reason was because of climate change And to me, that is so foreign. So I love the podcast because I get to meet so many different people and hear how they think. And we do think so differently. This is a girl who grew up in East Berlin. So she's behind the Iron Curtain. She was telling me she lived with five other people in a flat that had one bedroom, a flat as an apartment to you Midwesterners in America. And they had an outhouse. They didn't even have a bathroom in the home. So... She said that she would hold her pee at night because it was so cold and the toilet seat was cold and it just was not worth it. So she would pee her pants. And growing up under communism, I mean, think about how that had changed her. That changed her to where from thousands and thousands of years, she has broken the chain of reproduction. She has said, it's going to stop with me here because of climate change and Do we know enough for you to make that decision that you're not going to have children? I don't know. I certainly wouldn't know enough to say that I'm going to stop that unbroken chain of thousands and thousands and thousands of years, not continue the human race, at least as it pertains to my lineage. But she had no problem with it. I found that fascinating. So we are all so, so different. You want to do some fun questions? Let's do it. By the way, I wanted to ask you about money. Does that play a role in how many kids that you have? It didn't play into the reasoning that we had them because we're very aware that there are multiple different ways to raise kids. Some more expensive, some not, you know, some a lot more economical. For us, it felt like a calling. Do you have a job currently? I've been very part-time personal training for the last 13 years. And currently, no, currently I'm just keeping it up as a hobby and helping people out where I can. What's your husband doing? He is in the middle of figuring out his next career steps after this period of becoming international citizens and the sale of the business. So you guys must have made a pretty penny. We had a severance that got us here for a little while. and But no, we had set up our rental properties as well. So we've been... Oh, really? Yeah. You've been buying rental properties through the years? How many do you have? Three, but now two. We sold one and it closed today. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Did you sell it because neither of you are working? No, we sold it because we are seeing a trend of... When we bought it in 2018 uh, in Canmore, we had, for whatever reason, again, we're both kind of, we had this feeling we could hold it for a while, probably get another 25, 30% of it. And we both feel like there's some kind of recession coming. And we made it the choice to get out at what we feel like is possibly the top of the bubble. Interesting. I would not have coached that but we're all different you tried to time the market and i don't ever advocate for timing the market so interesting 20 to 30 percent more 20 to 30 percent less in my mind you could flip a coin 
Yeah, there were other factors at play as well, but it was always in our minds that this was a short to medium term plan. Understood. Understood. So what kind of job is he trying to get? He is considering being the first one in his family to get a trade. None of his family works with their hands. They've always been owners and investors, and he would really like to do something where he is building. Excellent. Okay. So are you saving money at all? Or are you starting to deplete savings? Or are you pretty much have enough in savings that it's not a worry or a concern? There's a percentage of yes to all of those questions. There have been savings depleted. Long term, we're not completely worried, but we also reached a point where it was pinchy enough to take some action. Very cool. So I'm always fascinated by money. Do you mind me asking what you pay in Puerto Aventuras? How many bedrooms you have? How many square feet? We found a four-bedroom for 40,000 pesos a month, which is almost unheard of in that town. They're usually a lot more expensive. It's probably around 1,700 square feet. Okay, so 40,000 pesos just for listeners divided by the exchange rate is about 18.6. So about $2,150 a month. And did you sign an annual lease? Okay. Yeah, those people in Canada, they got some money. I mean, you drive around, you see some of those houses up on the side of a mountain, and you're like, dang, how do people afford that? But you start. A lot of them don't. Really? They're underwater? Is that what you're saying? You know how people work. Yes, I do. So no money scares. You leave it up to God, basically. Social media, is it a net negative or a net positive for society, do you think? I like that question because it's nuanced. It's how things are done now. It's a necessary part of life. And I think it all depends on if it's going to be a net positive or net negative in your life. Overall, I see more negatives broad scale. However, right now, like I said before, I think we're in the middle of kind of an awakening and people using it as a tool instead of having it turn them into tools. Who is on their phone more, you or your husband? In the previous half of our marriage, him. And in the second half of our marriage, me. George Clooney or Brad Pitt? Initially Brad Pitt, but Clooney has aged better. Which is funnier, Trevor Noah or a paper cut? No idea who Trevor Noah is. If you were stuck on PP Island in Thailand, that's a beautiful island, by the way, by yourself and could only bring one band's album, who are you taking with you? The Backstreet Boys. I like that answer. That has not been an answer yet. If you could go anywhere in the world for one week, where are you going? Right where I am. If someone were to give you $100,000 worth of stock in one of these three companies, Spotify, Airbnb, or Pinterest, which would you take? Airbnb. Do you use Airbnb a lot? They're very responsive. But the fees that they tack on, oh, man. How has there not been a competitor? And I know there are some, like Verbo even has a Verbo. They used to call it VRBO. So I know there are competitors, but I'm surprised there aren't bigger competitors. Is not wanting something just as good as having it? Yes, I think not wanting something is just as good as having it from the angle that contentment is wanting what you have, not having what you want. 
to your point on gratitude as well. What percentage likelihood would you give that COVID-19 was deliberately unleashed on the world? The only certainty I have is that politicians were unleashed upon the world. If China were at war with us, do you think they would tell us? They would tell the media companies what to tell us. (laughs) Laurel, it's getting hot in here. I think it's because the conversation got heated at times. I'm not sure. But my wife is blowing up my phone about getting health insurance, and I know today is the last day. Folks, wake up full of gratitude. Remember that relationships are the most important thing in life. Get a good relationship going with the man above. Don't text in the presence of others. Recognize our differences because, as you can see, 10 years now makes a lot of difference. We think differently. Jonathan Haidt would say, who is the author of The Coddling of the American Mind, I think he would attribute it to social media. However, my mom's addicted to Facebook, and I actually turned my mom off to where she can't see when I'm online because I will roll over in bed in the morning, and it could be 6.48 a.m. I'm not ready to get up, and I'll get a text, and it'll say, like, is Aria ready to FaceTime? Aria's my daughter. And I'm like, hot damn, she saw that I was on Facebook and thought she could text message me. How does she not know better? Well, not everybody is, quote, put in their place, which I don't think my guest and I agreed on what that meant exactly. I think I just meant corrected, not necessarily like told off. The girl doesn't get in my car coming from Dallas, who I'm dating. She starts texting while I'm talking to her. I don't say, bitch, fly back to DFW. I wouldn't do that. But you young guys who ask me to have coffee with you, and I do, you pay attention if you have questions about the important aspects of life. Because if you're texting, I don't think you're listening. You're not some masterful multitasker that I haven't met yet. And if you are, introduce yourself that way. And then I'll be more understanding. I want to give Laurel a chance to tell you how she can be found online. Her blog is excellent. It's short. So if you have a short attention span, I actually read an article going down the elevator but I'm a fast reader, and that comes from reading. If you want to be a faster reader, read more. And I'll have more to say about that. Maybe I'll do a solo episode, because there's a lot to be said for reading and properly speaking. My wife and I, we will take turns reading to each other. So I'll read aloud for 15 minutes, we'll set the timer, and then she will read aloud to me for 15 minutes. What does that do? It eliminates a lot of ums and uhs in your speech. I don't want my podcast filled with ums and uhs. Those have to be deleted. So, if you want to become a better speaker, read aloud. I'm going to hand it to Laurel so she can tell you how to find her. Thank you for having me, Brad. The blog is roadlesstraveled, with one L, dot online. And on Instagram, it's roadlesstraveled, dot eight eight. Thank you again for your invitation. Excellent. Folks, you know where to find me. I'm at man underscore overseas on both Instagram and Twitter. 
There's no better time, by the way, to start coaching the next two weeks, most important two weeks. We also talk about things like, how do you make friends as an adult? It's not as hard as you would think. You ask for a number the same way you would ask for a a gal's number if you were in the dating pool, which is getting shallower and shallower, unfortunately. But I appreciate you joining us. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. Bye-bye.